over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. We are delighted to have Dr. Daryl Bach on the broadcast again. Dr. Bach has written two massive commentaries on the Gospel of Luke. And Luke, as you well know, also wrote another book that we call the Acts of the Apostle. Many folks don't know that Luke wrote more of the New Testament than even the Apostle Paul. So Daryl has spent probably 30 years now in Luke and Acts? 40. 40, but who's counting? And, yeah, um, I've got it back to my doctoral work. So, so yeah. you know, so I guess you know a thing or two about Luke. So let's talk about the book of Acts, Dr. Bach. So first of all, let's talk about Theophilus and this person that the apostle is writing to. We think he has some type of social status. He may even been the patron behind the writing of both Luke and Acts. He's linked together by the preface that comes both with the gospel and the book of Acts. And I think he is a Gentile who may have come through to Christianity by having been a God-fearer first, which means that he first came to believe in monotheism and then in the Christian hope. And he's in a movement as a Gentile, having allied himself previously to the God of Israel And now the people of the God of Israel, for the most part, are pushing back on the Christian movement. And the Christian movement is trying to combine Jews and Gentiles into one body, which is sociologically a real mess in the first century, because those two groups don't get along. And so he's reassuring Theophilus he's exactly in the right place because God has been at work doing this literally for centuries in the basis of his promise and plan. And so he's reassuring Theophilus about the credibility of what Christianity is not only in terms of who Jesus is, but what it's attempting to achieve between people. We come to one of the more familiar verses that you and I studied under our dear brother, Dr. Howard Hendricks, Acts 1-8, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Is it fair to say those concentric rings are not only geographic, but theological in dispersion? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, the whole Luke Acts is actually um, laid out geographically. It starts with an appearance in the temple in the gospel. Then you're in Galilee. Then Jesus journeys to Jerusalem, which is the center. That's where you start off in Acts. And then from Acts, you move from uh, Jerusalem out into Judea and Samaria, you hit Samaria in chapter 8, and then you're out to the ends of the earth with Paul's missionary journeys, eventually going to Rome, which is the center of the activity in the world. Rome either represents the end of the earth itself or the capital for how to get there. And so even the structure of Luke Acts is laid out geographically. Remind us how important Rome is at this time. Well, well, it's called the Roman Empire for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Next question. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, you know, but Darryl, people don't realize, arguably, the most powerful empire on the planet? Oh, absolutely. And extending from Spain all the way over into what would be currently Iran and possibly as far over as India. I mean, it was a vast empire. If you travel to Italy today and you're walking on the way to the Colosseum to see it, you walk by the Roman Forum, there's a set of four maps on one of the walls that shows the extent of the Roman Empire at different points in time in its development. And you just see the expanse that was the Roman Empire, which makes what's going on in Israel interesting because it really was just a little outpost in the big scheme of things as far as the Roman Empire was concerned. I tell people it's like talking about territories that America is associated with. So you can take your pick, Puerto Rico or Samoa, that would be Israel and the Roman Empire. And for our nomenclature, they were essentially occupied. That's exactly right. They were vassal states. 
They were run and administered by authorities who were sent from Rome. The Romans tried to cooperate with local rulers to get their support. And so that's what Caiaphas was. That's what Herod the Great and then Herod Antipas were. They were um, Jews who had assimilated to the Roman authority and were willing to work with it. We have this preface, I guess, of the geographic, the theological dispersion of the gospel. Jerusalem, of course, being pious, God-fearing Jews. We're going to have Pentecost here in a moment in the way we read our text, and it's going to spread the gospel. We talk, and I don't want to get too down the details on this, but give us Daryl Bach's 25-word assessment of the significance of Pentecost. So it's been 49 days after Christ's burial. Yep, it's day 50. Day yep, 50. you're right. Yep. So this day happens in chapter 2. They've come together. Give us the synopsis of what's happening and why this is so important. John the Baptist predicted that the way you'd know who was the Messiah and that the new era had come is that he would baptize with the Spirit, unlike John who was baptizing with water. Pentecost is that day showing that the benefits, the beginning of benefits of the new era were coming to God's people because God was now going to indwell them. And that connects us back to the promises of Jeremiah that I'm going to put the law inside of you. I'm going to put the law in your heart. And so that may have been 40 words, but that's the summary. That's good. So, and I often remind our church and when I'm teaching the importance of the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31, you referenced, and now we're seeing the fulfilling of that new covenant. The inauguration, the start of it, of course, there's a consummation that's yet to come. The inauguration of those promises are put in place because now, rather than having an external law to which a person responds and fails to respond to, now the idea is God's going to do a transforming work from within us that makes us capable of walking with God, which actually is the theme of Romans 6 to 8 as well. And this is a part of the gospel. The gospel isn't just about, you know, Jesus dying for sin. But what happens as a result of it? What happens as a result of it is we get put back in a healthy relationship with God in which he gives us his spirit, he makes us his children, and we are now capable of walking with God in a way that we were not capable of walking in before we had the spirit of God. In chapter 2, we have between 13 and 16 known languages. The word is dialectos in our Greek New Testament. The only time we have tongues is in chapter 2 verse 11, we hear them in our own glossus speaking of the mighty deeds of God. But prior to that, these are dialectos, dialecta, dialecta. I've argued, and I could be wrong, that this was a twofold miracle. That if you were a German born person, I was Italian, I'm speaking Italian, you're hearing German. If you're speaking German, I'm hearing Italian. It says they're hearing in their own language. Right? Wrong? I think the people are speaking in a language that they didn't learn so that the second part of that may not be necessary. In other words, I would see them as speaking in foreign languages in this text, and they're hearing the language that the person is speaking that previously they were not able to speak. We hear them in our own glosses speaking the mighty deeds of God. Yep. So I think it's a one-step miracle. And not to complicate things, but I see this as being slightly different than what gets talked about as tongues in First Corinthians. Oh, no question. No question. And that's, that's my point. But, you know, you can be wrong. Dr. Bach can be wrong once. Uh, <laughs> let's go to Peter's sermon. He preaches his sermon, and 3,000 people respond. Yep. Yep. Not bad. And he doesn't even have to play an organ and invite people forward. Or I mean, use you know, a poem. He just responded. So, or use yeah. a poem. But he quotes a lot of Old Testament. <laughs> He sure does. That text is built around four Old Testament passages, Joel 2, that God's going to anoint his people with the Spirit of God, Psalm 16, that the Messiah is going to be raised from the dead, an allusion to Psalm 132, 11, which is actually an allusion to 2 Samuel 7 and the hope of the Davidic covenant, and then lastly, Psalm 110, 1, that says that God's going to exalt that Messiah and he's going to share in authority with God, and the distribution of the Spirit is the sign that that exaltation has taken place, that vindication of Jesus has taken place, and that enablement of God's people has taken place. And so the new covenant is inaugurated, and we're off and running, and the people who got it embraced it and entered into the new era. You mentioned 2 Samuel 7 very quickly. Give us a little exposition on that. Davidic covenant text. Another one I go back to again and again. That's right. Davidic covenant text that promises a line of descent through which God is going to bless the world. 
which means Messiah eventually. And I find it striking, Dr. Bach, he doesn't refer to the Messianic throne of Saul, who was the first king. He refers to the Messianic throne of David. Significance? Well, what's happened, of course, is, is that David has replaced Saul in both the regal line within Israel, but also laying the foundation for the spiritual work that that king is eventually, that dynasty is eventually called to do. There's a passage in Chronicles in which the throne that Solomon sits on is called God's throne. So some people want to distinguish between the earthly throne and the heavenly throne. This is something I won't do uh, because I think the two are connected to one another. They're part of the same promise. They participate in the same covenant and they have the same goal. And so whenever a king of Israel showed up, the hope was maybe he will be the one. And eventually the one who was the one was Jesus. And that's what the vindication also shows because it shows that God is so committed to this figure that he has raised him from the dead and put him in a position where he can be mortal and he can rule forever. All right. So now we have, uh, we've come off Pentecost. We come off this beginning fulfillment of the new covenant. You mentioned we haven't seen the complete realization of that yet. Peter's preached a sermon. Thousands have come to Christ. Peter and John are going into the temple at the hour of prayer. Uh, Again, we're so far removed from this, Daryl, but for these two apostles of Jesus who have now been identified with all this, you know, change and miracles and Pentecost events happening, now they march into the temple complex. Yeah, because they haven't left Judaism in their minds. They are completing what God has always promised. The fact, this is actually one of the points of Acts. The fact that the church became a separate entity and separated from Judaism wasn't because that was the at least original intent of the message, but they were forced out by the rejection that they met from the Jewish community. So they go into the synagogues. They always start in the synagogues. Even Paul in his missionary journey starts in the synagogues to go in and basically say, if you're a good Jew and believe in God's promise, then you'll embrace the Messiah that he sent. And they don't do that. So that eventually sociologically forced the church to be a distinct entity, even though it was not in continuity with the message that they were bringing, which was a message of continuity. The discontinuity was created because of the rejection of the nation. Now, God was aware they were going to do this. Isaiah 53 says that his own were going to reject the suffering servant. But in terms of the way they understood who they were, they saw themselves as still living within the promise of what it was that the God of Israel was offering to the nation. And they continued to preach that way in the early generations as they tried to make that point to Jewish people, even as the gospel was expanding to include others outside of Israel. Peter preaches again. Peter and John are arrested. It's a fascinating story, and they are essentially prohibited by the religious Supreme Court from preaching and teaching Jesus. And they go, no, not going to do it. We are called to do what we're called to do. So they continue to do it. They're willing to suffer the penalty for that disobedience in terms of the way uh, the authorities were going to handle it, but they were going to continue to talk about Jesus because they could not carry out the mission that God had given them to do by being silent. Hard turn. Does that apply today? It does. I think that we are called to uh, reflect who we are as Christians, and then if that represents disobedience to the civil law that's around us, we should accept that as a way of honoring what that structure involves and, and act accordingly. Acts chapter 5, we have this guy who named Barnabas, who we don't know a lot about, who's been extraordinarily generous uh, by selling a piece of property, and evidently these two saw what happened, and they tried to do something similar. Yeah, what Barnabas did was to be an exemplary believer and contribute to the well-being of the community. And what Ananias and Sapphira did was to pretend that they had done the same when they didn't. So they didn't pretend for very long because God exercised the judgment that showed that people are accountable to God for what they do, even though the immediacy of this judgment was exceptional. And so what we see is the church struggling to have the integrity that it needs to have in order to undergird the kind of gospel message that they're taking out into the world because 
the integrity that the church has for its message is dependent in part in terms of the credibility of the way people will receive a challenging message. It's connected to the integrity that the people of God have. Give me some real shoe leather on this, though. They're struck dead, Daryl. Well, of course they're struck dead, because I think what that shows is that if God applied his standard of justice without grace, that would be the result for not just Ananias and Sapphira, but for many of us. But what he's trying to show is, is that God is quite aware of how we interact and how we do what we do. And so there is an accountability. This just made it extremely vivid and extremely immediate. It's an exceptional situation, but it's designed to show God is keeping his eye on the church. The church is exploding. It's, uh, I heard one preacher many years ago say all of a sudden you've got between three and 5,000 infants in the nursery. And so we have a problem with what we read are the Hellenistic Jews. And if I'm correct, that's Greek-speaking Jews? Correct. Diaspora Jews who'd come to Israel and lived in the land, even though that isn't probably where they were born. And now we have this challenge where is it simply favoritism, they're overlooking the widows, and we have the first problem, we might say, other than the persecution of the apostles, we have the first problem in the church in Acts chapter Yeah, uh, and it's an inequity in how people are viewed simply on the basis of their uh, demographic background. I could say race, but I won't do that. And then the way in which this is solved is brilliant, because what they do is they allow the people who spotted the problem and were sensitive to it to be a key to its solution. And so they appoint a group of people to take care of the problem who, out of the very group from which the problem emerged, and they apparently solved the problem in the same breath. And then we get a glimpse of two of those leaders in what comes after, because we get a glimpse of Stephen and Philip, who are two of that group. And we see that not only were they capable of helping the church solve its internal problems, but they were very effective in witnessing to what the church was all about at the same time. I find it fascinating that in the selection of these men, especially the two aforementioned you, uh, Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Porcorsus Nicanor. We hear nothing about the rest of these guys, but we hear a lot about Stephen, and of course we're going to hear about Philip going forward. But it's interesting in chapter 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. And so the discipleship model in trust of faithful men who will be able to teach all other, we're seeing that work out as the church has exploded. We did not talk about Acts chapter 2 or the uh, 42, where they're continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking bread and prayer, which in many churches try to align some kind of core or philosophy based on those four features. Yeah, and those churches have a word deed core to them because it's not just those four things in that chapter. There's also a way in which they're engaging on the outside so that their word and their deed match and cohere. And this also, we can recover something else that we skipped over that's pretty important because it does ride through the book. And that is that when Peter and John are released from prison the first time and you get the prayer of the community for what it is that the church wants to be in the midst of this pressure, they don't pray to nuke the enemy, nor do they pray for the persecution and the pressure to go away. They pray to be bold and faithful in their sharing of the gospel. And that's what the rest of the book shows faithful people of God to be. And so Stephen steps into that space. Philip's going to step into that space. Ananias is going to step into that space. Peter's been in that space. And Paul's going to step into that space. And so is Apollos down the road. But let's just point out, these are the leaders who are stepping up, speaking the word with boldness, which we do see that theme run through. But just to help me understand 242 seems to be that what we would you know later talk about as elders or leaders of the church. No? Well, I think that actually what it's showing is the flavor of the church as a whole. There's no doubt that there's leaders of the church, but the church as a whole has such a consistent testimony with regard to these things that it propels the church. You know, if you study early church history— And you ask, how is it possible that this little group in the Roman Empire that was actually tried to be suppressed by the entire Roman Empire made its impact? The sociological studies will show that there was a credibility about what it is, not just that the leaders believe, but what these communities believe, that impressed itself on 
on people across the empire to a point where eventually the whole thing flipped. And so much so that before you get to Constantine, there are emperors trying to put down the influence of Christians before we get to Constantine. Of course, when he embraced the faith and put the power of the Roman Empire behind it, that also was a significant change. But getting there is the interesting part of the story. And remember, Constantine, of course, is the early fourth century. So, you know, we're talking about a centuries movement in which the integrity of the Church of God was carried by enough people, leaders and beyond you know, who had experienced discipleship that the credibility of the church was established and the message was embraced. And that's because they had a word deed approach to what it is that they did. What they said and what they did matched and people saw it. You bring out some important passages. There's so many, you know, uh, important ones to address, but I want to jump to Stephen's sermon. Okay. Um, Goodness, how many books, sermons, dissertations on this one <laughs> chapter that we're still trying to unpack and appreciate the depth, the scope with which this guy, that all we know about from his selection in Acts chapter 6 was he was full of faith, full of grace and power, performing great wonders and signs. Evidently, he had some pretty good rabbinic training. Evidently, he was used by God. But give us, you know, I'll give you 100 words. Give us 100 <laughs> words on Stephen's sermon. Well, he's doing several things. One, he's showing from the law what the law taught. What the law taught is that God cannot be contained in a building, that he's much bigger than that. So don't overcommit yourself to the building. The second thing that he taught is that in Israel's history, she has consistently rejected the messengers that God has sent, whether it be Joseph or Moses whether it be the commitment to the law that the nation made at Sinai that they turned their backs on with regard to idols, she consistently rejected the messengers of God. And he was setting up a place that he never got to, which is that Jesus is now next and last chapter in that story. And he was probably getting ready to challenge them with the fact that Jesus is their Messiah. But when he mentioned that he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, that was too much. He's and he done. got... Yep. He's yeah, he was done. He was it was a mob reaction. They put him to death. They stopped his message, but his message lived on in that chapter. He covers so much territory. The promise, the four hundred years in slavery, the covenant yeah. of circumstances with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarch, Joseph, Jacob, Egypt, Shechem. He talks about the promise again and again. He retraces Moses' life, which for their ear, he was the most powerful voice, right? I mean, it's one thing. And so the whole point is, look, you missed it with Joseph. You missed it with Moses. Mm -hmm. uh, you missed it with your own covenant and the way you responded, even by giving the temple more honor than it probably deserves, because God is far bigger than that. And you're missing the messengers when God sends them. Basically, he's telling them, open up your ears and your hearts. And of course, what they did was to close their ears and their hearts and they did it by uh, the way they removed Stephen from the scene. In fact, verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, yeah. and rushed, what a picture, rushed at him with one impulse uh, when they driven him out to the edge of the city, stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes, and we have this wonderful uh, Lucan little tell at the feet of a young man named Saul. Yep, who will become Paul and will be the hero of the second half of the book. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, chapter 8, verse 1. Yep. Um, and so now, a great persecution. You mentioned diaspora earlier. So we have this scattering. And if I remember my New Testament Greek study 100 years ago on that word, it was also a word used for dispersing seed, if I remember correctly. And so the church now is scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So we moved from Acts 1-8, Jerusalem. Now we're going to Judea and Samaria following the outline. And we've got this guy, Philip, who steps on the center stage. And shares in Samaria. And when the Samaritans come to embrace because they're viewed as half-breeds, God's got to reinforce the fact that this was a good move. So he brings Peter and John to see what it is that Philip is doing. And the Spirit is clearly placed on this group within their presence so that they can see that God is at work. The key actor in the book of Acts is not the apostles. The key actor in the book of Acts is God. 
every key move is either triggered by him or by Jesus or by the leading of the spirit. And so what we see is God at work moving his people. In fact, even the persecution ends up being an act of God that distributes the church out so that the message will go out because they tended to be bubbled in Judea and the persecution prevents that. And so the gospel begins to be dispersed. Samaritans receive it. And that sets us up for where we're headed with Paul, because the next thing that happens, of course, is that is that Jesus appears to Saul, calls him to himself, um, gives him a little quiet time for a few days to reflect <laughs> on what it is that he's seen. Uh, he goes to Ananias, who gives him what his commission is, and he's the one who's going to be called to take the gospel to the nations. It's interesting when you mentioned Philip being another player. His ministry is, at least what we have recorded, is pretty brief compared to Peter and Saul, who becomes Paul. That's right, because it's a transition, really. We're beginning to move out and make sure that not those who are just Jews are hearing the message. Acts chapter 9, the amazing account of the conversion of Saul who has essentially um, legal papers in hand to apprehend. Why would Jerusalem and why would Saul and the pious scribes and Pharisees, why would they want to arrest these people and bring them back? To, why would they care, Daryl? They're trying to stop what they see as a insurrection within Judaism. And so they're using all the power that they have as a religious institution to try and stop that. And of course, then Jesus intervenes and stops that process by turning, turning Saul, the persecutor, into Paul, the apostle. And, you know, the rest is history. I mean, the second most important figure probably in the first century, although you could perhaps put Peter in this mix, is Paul. Sure, uh, he, sure. he writes... Uh, next to Luke, you got this dead right at the start. Luke's written more of the New Testament than anybody else, but right next to him, only by a nose in the Kentucky Derby, Paul writes second. And between the two of them, that's 60% of your New Testament. When we see Saul's conversion, and the language that Luke uses is so delicious because um, in chapter 9 verse 1, he's trying to bring them bound to Jerusalem, and we find that word uh, several times throughout the record. Chapter nine fourteen. here, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name, and of course, name begins to play a prominent role, and then when we have Saul later on, you mentioned this already, chapter 9 verse 20, several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And then it drops down, verse 21, those hearing him continue to be amazed. Is this not the one who in Jerusalem to destroy those who are called on his name, who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? And that theme continues and we're going to see it all the way until later when uh, is Ananias that comes up to him with the belt and binds his hands and feet. So this is what yep. awaits you. <laughs> yeah, the great reversal yeah. of, of fate. And it's important to note that this story in Acts 9 is told three times. Yes. It's told here, it's told in chapter 22, and it's told in chapter 26. 26. Mm -hmm. And whenever Luke repeats himself, he really wants us to get it. Another thing that gets repeated several times is the story of Cornelius, because it shows up in 10, you come back to it in 11, you also go through it in 15. And so these core events are very, very important. Pentecost gets alluded back to in the midst of some of these conversations as well, particularly as the gospel goes out to Gentiles. And so you've got, you know, you've got these themes that Luke introduces, and then he begins to weave them together as you move through the book, which shows that part of his concern is to show that the intent of God was to bring Jew and Gentile together in Christ and that reconciliation is very much a point of the book and part of the design and why Theophilus shouldn't be disturbed. And if you want an epistolary piece that reflects the attitude of the book of Acts, you can't do better than Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, which talks about in the new man, Jew and Gentile are brought together in Christ so that that reconciliation not only involves my individual relationship with God, but the relationship I have with others as well. 
You mentioned Cornelius already. Let's briefly talk about the significance of the vision of Cornelius and Peter simultaneously that brings them together. Yeah, I mean, this is, you talk about an e-harmony date. Everything about this is pulled together by what it is that God does with both of them before they ever meet. He's given them each direction. He's given Peter a vision about eating unclean food to show that the law and the practice of the law, which had come between Jew and Gentile, is no longer going to come between Jew and Gentile, that anyone who fears God is recognized by God. And of course, then he takes the gospel to Cornelius as a result in the message. He actually says that very directly, that that was the message of the vision that he received. And so he hangs out with Gentiles in their home for several days, which then he gets pushed back on in chapter 11. And he says, look, yeah, if you're taking this to the complaints department, your complaint's not with me. Your complaint is with the one who set this up. And that was God. And he set it up not only by giving me a vision, but before I even got to the end of the message, but even give an invitation, he put the spirit of God in these Gentiles. And you know, as a good Jew, that the only way that the spirit of God can indwell a vessel is if it's been cleansed. So he's telling them what it is that drew him to be so responsive. And what drew him to be so responsive was the act and testimony of God himself. So this book is the acts of God, you know, even though it's called the acts of the apostles, it is the Trinitarian God. It's God whose plan is carried out. It's Jesus who directs the characters who are involved. And it's the spirit who indwells people. All of them are involved in the acts Mm -hmm. that are portrayed in the book. In your study, and again, some of these things to me are just Bible study method observations on my part, but in your study, the Holy Spirit's baptism vis-a-vis the water baptism. And I find that very interesting in the last part of chapter 10, because while Peter is speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message and the believers are baptized. And then he says in verse 47, no one can refuse water for these to be baptized. And we have this confusion, I would say, between uh, evangelical, fundamental, Christians, denominational, about Holy Spirit baptism in the face of water baptism. We're seeing a transition here in the book of Acts. Well, what you're seeing, of course, is that water baptism is nothing but a portrayal, a visual, experiential portrayal of what spirit baptism is. Spirit baptism is the indication that, again, a vessel has been cleansed through the forgiveness of sins because they've sought forgiveness and Jesus has provided it so that they now are a cleansed vessel and God can come and indwell them and indwells them permanently. He seals that presence as, again, Ephesians 1 tells us. And so water baptism is a way of picturing that cleansing, that purification, which is what water baptism meant in the Jewish context. It was a way of cleansing only this wasn't multiple washings that happened on every occasion. This was a once and for all washing that showed that you had been brought into the people of God. You've been permanently cleansed, and the Spirit was now permanently going to indwell those who have exercised faith and have come to experience salvation. We have, of course, the Church of Antioch, which is a another diaspora in chapters 11, 19. They arose who were scattered because of the persecution Correct me if I'm wrong, we've got this running trend of these key players, as we've talked about. We've got Peter, Philip, uh, Saul becomes Paul, uh, and they're moving out boldly preaching the gospel, but the church is running scared. Well, actually, yes and no. I mean, the church is functioning in all these places. It continues to exist. I mean, when we come back to Jerusalem, there's still a functioning church there. Um, But, of course, the other thing that's happening is is that the call has been to go out into the world. And so what you get are leaders who are going out and living out that call, some of whom are ministering in one location like James does in Jerusalem, and others of whom are moving around to take that gospel to a variety of locations, which is what Peter and Paul did, and what Philip did, at least during this time of persecution. So I wouldn't say the church is running scared. The church in Acts is really portrayed as being willing to take it on the chin as they stand up for being bold and faithful. And although there are times when they preserve their well-being by getting out of Dodge when the heat gets really high, they certainly move Paul along in some of his missionary journeys to protect him at certain points. The church itself, the communities are remaining there and are giving their testimony in the midst of this environment. 
and continuing to function and doing so, as I noted earlier, very, very effectively over a long period of time. Is the term uh, we often talk about, you know, at the Church of Antioch was when the disciples were first called Christians. Is that diminutive? Is that derogatory? Is that... It's a little bit of everything. I mean, it's, I mean, they're called Christians because they represent Christ. It's opponents who've given them the name. They've taken it on, and Luke seems to accept it as something that the, the church recognized. And they, I think they took it on as a badge of honor. You know, if we are being accused for sharing the Christ and being identified with that, then so be it. Chapter 12, Peter is arrested. Uh, he and James, uh, James is the brother of John, is put to death with a sword. So the persecution now, the temperatures turn it up. It's a little different than being arrested and taken back to Jerusalem for whatever they might face. And now we've got this, you know, the chains are falling off in prison. The iron gates are opening. We've got some pretty incredible miracles coming along uh, in chapter 12. And then obviously Herod's going to die. And uh, that's going to change things. How? Well, what we see, of course, is that God is protecting his church in the midst of these moments. And even though later on, you know, Peter was martyred for the faith, and so was Paul, there's a time when it happens. In the meantime, the expansion of the gospel is continuing to take place, and God is moving at points to protect the people involved later on. I mean, we saw it earlier with Stephen. Some do die. Some are martyred later on. As I said, Peter and Paul will be martyred. But the gospel is moving, and the point of the book as a whole, and this is important to say because we've done a lot of detail in the meantime, the point of the book as a whole is that the Word of God is triumphantly getting out, and it's moving. It's in the process of moving, not just from being in Jerusalem, but it's going to end up in Rome, in the middle of the capital of the Roman Empire, and from there it can go anywhere. And so what we're really seeing is the triumph of what Acts calls the Word of God, and the Word of God in Acts is not the Bible. The Word of God in Acts is the message of the gospel. All right, you differentiate that. Just give me a little help there. I mean, why is the gospel not—why are you differentiating the Bible versus— Because I think some people, when we hear the Word of God, think immediately of the 66 books of the Bible or the 27 books of the New Testament, the 36 books of the—whatever the number uh, is—the 39 books of the Old Testament— uh, now, folks, and, this is a seminary professor with a PhD, and exactly right. uh, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. Right. I'm just I'm, I'm feeling warm and fuzzy all over. That's good. Well, I want you to feel comfortable. <laughs> anyway, the point is, is that it's not always just the book. That sometimes it's the message that is characterized as the Word of God, particularly the message that surrounds Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel. But it, it's so book. striking, Daryl, that their arguments are Old Testament arguments. They're not quoting. This hadn't been written yet. Paul hadn't picked well, up that, a pen yet. Well, that's true, too. But even if you just think about the Hebrew Scripture, okay, my point is the Word of God is what they are teaching and preaching, not just from the Old Testament, but the message that has emerged out of that promise about Jesus. That's considered Word of God. In fact, if you go back to the parable of the seed, which, of course, is one of the core parables of Jesus's teaching, the seed that is planted is the word of God, by which he means the word that he is teaching and preaching, that he is, you know, spreading across the earth and that those who follow him will spread across the earth. I mean, this message is supposed to be fruitful. And that's the point of that parable is to say there are three things that get in the way. Satan gets in the way persecution gets in the way, the cares of this world get in the way, but the person who receives the Word of God ends up being fruitful as a result. And he's talking not about the Old Testament at that time. He's talking about the message that he's bringing that is the message of the kingdom, which is the message of the Word of God. Of course, the New Testament encapsulates that message, which is why it becomes the Word of God. You mentioned um, the acts of the Holy Spirit, which, of course, I reiterate as well. But we have these first, second, and so-called third missionary journeys uh, where Paul is sent out. And each time we have a transition, if that's a fair way of explaining it, where the Holy Spirit sets apart. First, it's Barnabas and Saul, and then, of course, we know the transition there. But what I find striking is that, for example, in Acts 13, is the recall of the Old Testament you know, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, and he led them out of the wilderness. And then he talks about judges, prophets, 
King Saul, King David, jumps all the way to the New Davidic Covenant, Jesus, and then John the Baptist, and then he addresses them in 26, brethren, sons of Abraham. So he's acknowledged everything we got. They would disagree with nothing until, of course, he comes to his argument about who this Jesus is and who this John the Baptist is. So when you talk about the gospel, I find it striking God's word, God's prophet, God's promises, and they've all been fulfilled. And then the one that gets him either in trouble or gets him appreciation, God raised him from the dead. Well, there's one other thing that gets him in trouble. It gets him in even more trouble. And it fits something that happened to Jesus in Luke chapter 4. And that is when he mentions that God may bless Gentiles. And so, again, this message of reconciliation is controversial because of the way in which God is reaching out to do a major work of reconciliation. So in Luke 4, when Jesus preached in the synagogue, then he said, you know, I'm the one who fulfills Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. The crowd was going, well, could that possibly be? We know he mean he's Joseph's kid. They're struggling with that. But the moment he says, you know, in Elijah and Elijah's time, Elijah's time, God didn't bless Israel, but in each case, he blessed the Gentile. That was too much, and they exploded. Yes. So here in Acts 13, you get the presentation. Oh, well, we want to hear more about this. We'll invite you back. But when he turns and says he's going to turn to the Gentiles, man, that's too much. Too much. That's too much. Let's jump ahead. The Council of Jerusalem. And this has always been a favorite chapter of mine. I call it, you know, we had the first internal problem in Acts 6 with the Hellenistic Greek widows. Uh, now in 15, it's... Uh, I'll give my synopsis, and then you can correct me. So these Gentiles are coming to Christ, and they love the reports of it. But the council says, kind of blows the whistle, Paul and Barnabas, you come back and give us a report of what's going on out there. Where are they in understanding the gospel to the Gentiles, and what pivotal you know, account are we seeing here in the so-called Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15? The problem here is, is this asking the question, does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? Yep. And the answer, the short answer to that question after they sort through it is no. But it's a logical position to have taken because, at least with regard to circumcision, circumcision was not tied to the Mosaic law. It was tied, it was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is the core covenant of promise that's being realized. And, and, and just so, let me interrupt you to remind our listeners, this is before the Mosaic law. Exactly right. And so you're sitting here saying, well, of course they ought to at least be circumcised because that's the core commitment that shows that you're part of the people of God. But the reply is, look, God showed us how this worked because he gave Cornelius and company the spirit of God before they ever got circumcised. Mm -hmm. So apparently it was good enough. So let's not add to something that God has shown. This is why I said earlier, the book of Acts is not about the acts of the apostles, about the acts of God, because every key event is reinforced in one way or another by something either God does, Jesus does, or the Spirit does. So when James finally, and again, I'm sanctified imagination, the council meets, and James is sort of the appointed one who's going to tell them, okay, this is what we've decided. And it troubles me and help me out here. Uh, he explains to them, write to them and tell them, abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, what strangled, and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So we have these idols, fornication, strangled, and blood laws, if you will, and then transitions, and I would call it explanational, for... Moses himself taught this, and we want you to teach this in the synagogues. Why those four things? Because many of them are associated with idolatry. And so at least two of them, maybe all four of them, depending on how you argue it. So he's basically saying in the midst of carrying this message to the world, be sensitive to the Jewish background of some of the people you're going to be sharing with. And so this is just a way of showing concern and respect for others in terms of how you limit your own. You know, we have all these passages in the epistles where we limit our freedom on the basis of how it may impact someone else who may not appreciate 
the freedom that they have. So it's an initial expression of that kind of view. It's like what Paul says in Corinthians. He says, I'm a Jew to the Jew and a Greek to the Greek. And so there's just this sensitivity that he's trying to build in. And it's an important sensitivity. I need to be sensitive to people around me and not just exercise the world and respond to the world in the way I myself see it. And he's trying to create that kind of, how can I say that, ethical awareness in the community. And so they write this letter to be sensitive to the Jewish communities that many of them are going to be ministering. How, and I don't want to, I mean, this opens a can of worms that we really can't go down, but we talk about cultural and contextual Christianity. And I remember, for example, teens going to another country that did not have uh, any way to do communion, and they chose to use what they brought from the States, which happened to be Fritos and Pepsi. <laughs> and we can you know, leave that for another time. But right. when you read abstain from idols, fornication, strangled, and blood, contextually, you mentioned perhaps two of the four, maybe all, are tied to idolatry. Why that? Why not other things? Because the most offensive thing to a Jewish to a Jew. person was idols were other Do gods. you think, and again, I know this is a loaded question, do you think that those were as weighty as what the gospel was changing? In other words, the Baptist, you know, stop smoking, stop drinking, you know, stop fooling around, walk the aisle, pray the prayer, where we would say, no, come to Christ and let the Holy Spirit work in your life to change you. So were these things so contextually major then, you know, what that audience was experiencing versus... My response would be simple. Do you want people to hear the gospel? The answer to that question is yes. Do you want to remove the obstacles that will cause them to hesitate to hear the gospel? The answer to that question is yes. If something that you do is in their minds automatically flashing to be associated with idolatry, would you want to do that if you had the choice not to do it? The answer to that question is, I would choose to refrain so that it doesn't get in the way. And so I think that's kind of the line or direction that they're pushing for as they work with this. Now, in fact, it's a very, as you've already suggested, complicated issue. When we get to the issue of meat in 1 Corinthians yeah. 8 to 10, you get four different answers depending right, on your context. Right. But watch how it works. You go to the marketplace, you eat the meat that you buy for yourself, you don't ask questions, it's not a problem, okay? But you don't eat it at all in the temple because you shouldn't even be in the temple to begin with, okay? I'm talking about the idol temple, okay? So that's an absolute no. So you have an absolute yes and an absolute no. You go to someone's house, they present meat before you. You're free to eat unless or until someone says, that's been offered to an idol, in which case I say, all of a sudden you're on what I call the temple diet, Okay. You aren't eating that once they mention it because the association then takes care of the way you're supposed to respond. So you got four different situations and four different responses. Depending on how directly the association is made, the letter is asking for people not to contribute to the possibility that the association could be made. Acts 16, we're into Macedonia. We have now conversions happening in Europe. And now we've, uh, as our dear brother and mentor and teacher with the Lord today, talked about it was Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul, Paul and Barnabas, and now Paul. And so Paul is leading the way for this third part of the record of Acts, and we see him leading in such a strong way with these continuing missionary cycles. Memory serves me, the second journey is about three years and over 2,000 miles. That sound about right to your... Yeah, I mean, I remember when I first, I only tripped to Turkey and looking at the topography of what it is that Paul had to walk, you know, in order mm -hmm. to make this trip. And I'm sitting here going, pretty hardy soul. I mean, mm -hmm. um, you know, we think of miles and we think of cars or we think of planes. Waiting in the airport. <laughs> exactly right. You know, no, this is one small foot at a time, you know, one step at a time. So this is quite an undertaking that took time to get from place to place, et cetera. Even if you used a horse every now and then, still pretty time consuming, et cetera. Now, these are significant moves that are being made. 
So, and I love to appeal to Second Corinthians chapter 11, you know, to understand a little bit about what Paul went through. Because if you've read Innocence Abroad by Mark Twain, you know, the three months it takes him to go through Israel, well, we don't understand. I mean, again, I whine and complain if I have to wait in the airport, right? Or if the plane's canceled. Exactly. Talk about the chains fall off. Of course, we've got hymnology. Luther loved this passage, chapter 16. Paul and Silas are in prison. They've been beaten with many blows, the text said, beaten with rods. They're chained. They're praying and singing hymns of praise. They're being faithful. We're back to that prayer in chapter four. They're being faithful and they're being bold in the way they're going about doing what they're doing. And so, you know, even when they're confined and theoretically their ministry is on hold, they're still ministering, even in the prison. And God honors that, lets them go. But then they honor that by not running out and just escaping, okay? But they actually are concerned to be concerned about the people who've held them in prison. So he hangs around so he can share the gospel with a guy who's been impressed with the fact of, you know what, those guys got out of their chains and I didn't do it. God did. So now what do I do? And so he responds and they share the gospel with the Philippian jailer and bring him into the loop. But I inject in here Western Christianity. I mean, I get a diagnosis of cancer. I go through challenges at work. I get fired, fill in the blank. I'm not singing at midnight. That's exactly right. They are resting in the sovereign direction of God. The sky never falls for a Christian because Mm -hmm. God has people in his hand. How do you help folks beyond that, you know, academic intellectual line? How do you help folks get there, Daryl? We're a whining, reach for ibuprofen, go to the doctor. We're an entitled culture, okay? We've created an entitled culture in the West. We think that we deserve what we have. We don't appreciate that grace has paid a terrific debt, that we live a life of gratitude out of response for what it is that God has delivered us from. And we appreciate the fact that as stewards, of a God who gives us the life in the days that we have, we rest in his care and hands and we rejoice in that because when that comes to an end, we're with him. Well, and I wonder, again, we're so focused on the here and now we don't think about the there and then. Well, that's part of my point. We do not understand the brevity of life and the eternality of Christ. And we also don't appreciate the nature of the depth of what it is that God has done. There's a wonderful passage in Luke that says the one who is forgiven little loves little. The one who is forgiven much loves much. If you realize how much you've been forgiven, then you should be a person who's not only grateful, you should be a forgiving person as well. I want to jump to uh, Mars Hill. In our world, so many people think they're spiritual. They concoct their own ideas. Uh, we see this with, uh, not to pick on a, you know, a group of people, but we see it with artists who say, I'm spiritual, you know, I believe in a spiritual realm. And uh, this is somewhat of uh, Paul's situation on Mars Hill, the Aragopagus. Yeah, and the interesting thing about this is the way he goes at it. He does not cite a single biblical passage in the midst of a biblical message, which is telling a biblical story. But when he gets to the core point, well, he does two things. He starts off by saying, I see you're very spiritual, okay? But he says it and then moves into challenge and by giving them pause on where they are coming from. So he comes at them from where they are coming from, getting them to think about the spirituality that they have. So he, in effect, says, I see you're very spiritual, but let's talk about spirituality for a second. And he wants to get them to reflect. He wants them to pause on where they are spiritually. And his speech challenges them at various points. But then when he gets to the key point, He doesn't cite a biblical verse. He actually cites one of their prophets to make the transition, one of their poets, rather. And so he's speaking to them out of their own cultural space, but he's moving them towards the story of the gospel in the process. And I often say to my students, how many of you could do that? How many of you could take what's going on in the culture, looking for where people are groping after God and stretching towards him and build the bridge to the story of the gospel in the process? That's what Paul's doing at Areopagus. And even though he challenges them, and he does, he challenges them by coming at them from where they're starting from, rather than producing this huge theological 
edifice that they have to get over in order to get there. It's a very sensitive speech. And we know he's upset about the idolatry before he gives the speech, because in verse 16, it says that he's upset and provoked by the idols yeah. that he was seeing yeah. in Athens. He's in the same frame of mind he was at the end of Romans 1 when he describes this culture and its idolatry. Yet when he talks to the culture, he does it in a different way than simply, I'm going to say this. Uh, beating the Bible. Well, not just beating the Bible over the head, but he does it graciously. He does it with gentleness and respect, to use the language of 1 Peter mm. 3. And he starts with where they're coming from and brings them along. We literally could do an entire podcast on the approach of this speech and what it means for the church to preach to a culture where people do not have a theological bone in their body. I differentiate, and again, we may disagree, when Paul's purely missionary, I don't like those terms, but missionary and evangelistic versus when he's talking to a group of believers. Because in this case, you're right. He's careful. He's kind. Uh, he talks about you're religious in every way. You've got an unknown God. But then he says, what you worship is an ignorance. That's I right. So he challenges them, but he lays right. the groundwork right. for the challenge. That's the point. But then next he'll be in Corinth and he will upbraid them. I mean, he will correct them. He will call them out. But the difference is, one is a setting of people who've yet to know Christ, who've yet to hear the gospel. The others are those who have, you know, trusted Christ, walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, whatever vernacular you want to say. We believe it's the church in Corinth, for example. And he's very candid with what they're because doing wrong. Because the Bible is consistently hard on those who think they know better. And so think about it with Jesus. Who does he give the hard time to? He gives the hard time to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Why does they do it? Because they claim to know God and they're misrepresenting him. So he holds people who claim to know God more accountable. To those on the outside, he's offering this grace and gospel that draws them. But to those who think they have their act together with God, he challenges them, whether that's in the church or outside. And so that's what's going on there. There is a distinction, and I think that is the distinction. That's good. That's that good. Works. That's good. He's going to spend about a year and a half in Corinth. He has another vision from the Lord in chapter 18, verse 9. The Lord said to Paul, in night by a vision, do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you for I have many people in the city. So he spends 18 months there. Gallio is the proconsul there. Uh, the Jews rise up against him, and they're going to bring him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Yeah, I mean, and now what you're seeing is the injection of Roman rulers who are asked to walk into this dispute. And when they look at it, their reaction is, this is not about Roman law. This is not about how Christians function in our culture. This is an internal dispute between people who believe in the God of Israel. And so you settle it. And that's going to be consistent now through the rest of the book. One of the things that Luke is doing is he's saying, we are not a threat to the political structure of the Greco-Roman world. We are a threat to the way people live their lives and the way they think about living their lives. But we are not a revolutionary entity in the sense of trying to overthrow Rome by power. We're about something far more transcendent. And you have nothing to fear from us. We will be good citizens. We will follow the law. You know, we won't be violent, etc. And so when we get to Paul's defense speeches, you know, the rulers are going to struggle with, I don't even know what to charge this guy as I send right. Paul off to Caesar, <laughs> right, you know, right, right. which is a strange position to be in. I'm going to appeal to the Supreme Court, but don't ask me what the case is. You know, well, that's that's uh, the modern day equivalent of kicking the can down the road, you know. <laughs> exactly. But but what Luke is portraying is is that when someone who looks at this from the outside sees it, they go, "Well, from a standpoint of the Roman Empire, what is this about? This doesn't have anything to do with our laws and who we are. This is a spiritual matter. This is about how you view God." And Rome kept their hands off of that as long as it didn't mess with the Roman Empire, and that's what you see the Roman leaders doing. So these sections are not only making the theological argument, they're also making a sociological argument about how to see the Christians who are now becoming more and more distinct from the Jews, but the outsiders are looking at this and saying, look, this is a dispute about your theology and religion. It's not our business. 
So he leaves it alone. And then, of course, we get into the other thing that we see in the second half of Acts, which is when there is violence, it's never coming from the Christians. It's coming from those who are persecuting the Christians. We have to move into Ephesus so much pivotal. You talked about all we could spend talking about Mars Hill. Ephesus would be second, right? I mean, what's yeah, going— and, and let me deal with this really quickly, because this is really an important example. The change that you see in Ephesus that is societal doesn't involve a law from the city council. It involves changed hearts. The people who burn those magic books burn those magic books because they become convinced that magic is dangerous and bad for the society. And so, again, it's this internal change which the gospel brings that brings the societal change. And sometimes I think we have this backwards. We think that we've got to put laws or other things in place to make it work. No, laws without the Spirit don't take you anywhere. That's the lesson of the Old Testament. What you need is the internal transformation that the gospel brings to the hearts of people so that they will view their lives and what they do differently. We, of course, have a book that is going to be written, a letter that he's going to write. So we think of the all the troubling in Ephesus and the, all the challenges he faced, and yet we have this wonderful epistle that he is going to later write back to them about what the Lord has done. And I mean, how many of you know churches you and I have been involved with, the Ephesus is the book of the Ephesians is how we begin the church. You know, it's loaded with the proper Christology, ecclesiology, mm-hmm. soteriology, eschatology. You pick your ology, it's there. It's all there. Let's move on toward the end of the book because time is running. You mentioned earlier, chapter 22, 26, Paul before Felix. You and I have been to Caesarea. We've been to Caesarea Philippi. We've been to the places within 50 yards. We can say this is where he was imprisoned. This is where he awaited on the Mediterranean. Talk to us about the significance of, you know, Ananias has come along. We haven't talked about this, but he's come along and he's told Paul what awaits him in Rome. The Ephesian elders don't want him to go. And yet the spirit has told him you're going to go to Rome. He's willing to face the persecution. He's living out a life of faithfulness and boldness that we've been talking about all the way through the book. He knows that that means that he's going to get arrested. He knows he's going to be persecuted. He doesn't know whether he's going to live and die, but his one commitment is to be faithful and bold. And so that's what you see in the final chapters. He ends up in Caesarea Maritima, which is on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, Sea, and eventually, of course, goes through that long sea voyage to Rome, which is a way of saying that Rome is on the ends of the earth. It really takes an effort to get there from Israel to Italy, and it's loaded with danger. And so he defends, and when he's in his defense speeches, he's defending his faithfulness to the promise of God. He says, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. I'm on trial for the hope of the 12 tribes of Israel. He isn't differentiating himself from the Jewish hope. He's identifying with it and saying, in effect, this is the completion of what God has promised centuries ago, which Luke Acts is arguing that this idea of bringing Jew and Gentile together through the Christ and through the forgiveness that he presents is not a new thing, even though it looks like a new thing. It's rooted in promises that go back decades, because for a Roman and for a Jew, what's important about religion is not what's the newest. It's what's been around for a long time and what's time-tested. And so he's reassuring Theophilus by taking him through Paul's point that is, that everything that's happened has been part of the program and plan of God that he designed long ago and that he's now executing, in which you now have the benefit of participating in. I love your bookends, your you know, framing it, because we start out in this tiny geographic spot in the Middle East, going to the most powerful place on the planet at the time, which is an arduous, long journey, not only literally, but metaphorically, and as he's in Caesarea Maritima, he says, I am standing trial for the hope and the promise made by God our fathers. And later he says, I am on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Again, when we start our Israel tours, that's our first spot of the first day. And I read that passage and I say, when you look across the Mediterranean, you're seeing the rest of the world. So this little tiny sliver the size of Connecticut where Jesus Christ comes, where the promise of Abraham was made, all the above. Now, here's the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, 
Am I correct in saying when Jesus says greater things you will do than I? Paul was certainly part of that storyline. And he says, I'm wearing these chains for the sake of the hope of Israel. And, That's right. And There's we, no break in the promise as far yeah. as he's concerned. He is in continuity with what it is that God has promised. That's part of the point that Luke is making. That's part of the point he wants Theophilus to get. And then in chapter 26, between verses 18 to 22, there's this wonderful section in which Paul says, I am here because I have responded obediently to God, and I am carrying out the commission that he has given me, and that is to turn people from darkness to light, and that happens through the gospel and the message of Christ, this inner working that we've been talking about, this message of the Spirit in the hearts of people, whether they're Jew or Gentile, that has been the saga of what Acts has been talking about, and we end up in Rome in chapter 28 with Paul in prison, and he is sharing the gospel unhindered and boldly. That's where the book ends. We have not left the prayer of chapter mm-hmm, four. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of that, he is sharing the gospel, and he's now doing it in the capital city, and now the word of God has made it to Rome. And in one sense, it's actually irrelevant what happens to Paul, because the word of God has now made it to Rome, and we know the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. Preaching the kingdom of God teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. The That's irony right. of that, he's under probably house arrest, not literally change at that point. <laughs> all that he's been through, and now it's unhindered. Yeah, the interesting thing about the ending there is that, as I said, it really does connect back to the language of these prayers because this parousias, with all parousias is the Greek word mm-hmm, here, mm-hmm. that's the boldness idea that we talked yeah. about before, and that's in that prayer in chapter 4. So this prayer, which the Jerusalem community uttered for itself, is actually the prayer that's hovering through the entire book. So wrap it up for us, Doc. So we've got the Lucan record of the gospel that we call the gospel according to Luke, the longest, the most complex language-wise, the most technical, the largest record of some things. Uh, He finishes it up with Acts, and then we drop off the radar looking for now what becomes essentially our Pauline New Testament, until later on, of course, with Peter, James, John. So give us the sort of the wrap-up summary of what Luke has accomplished in these two books. Luke has shown that the arrival of the interior work of God that is the product of forgiveness is designed not only to connect us to him, but to connect us to one another in an act of consummate reconciliation that ends up ultimately in the peace and shalom of what will come. And in the midst of doing that, he has shown that this is a part of the program and plan of God, planned centuries ago, starting with the Abrahamic covenant, now executed in Jesus, and yet to be consummated by him. Theophilus, you are exactly where you belong. Believer in Christ, you are exactly where you belong. Be assured of this and rest in this goodness and grace. And in the meantime, be faithful and bold. Dr. Daryl Bach, the executive director of the cultural engagement at the Hendrick Center, host of the Table Podcast, senior research professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, and my brother and sparring partner. (laughs) In this corner, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Daryl. Always a great honor to have you on the podcast. Michaelisian Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates. 